And it's that spirit, it's that Holy Spirit that the scripture talks to us about that leads us to the truth sometimes. I've tied this together with this, is that so many of us came into faith in believing in the Lord, believing in morals, believing in right and wrong, sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. And that it was there that when, when, when something happened or somebody would ask a question or somebody did something wrong, you'd have that gut feeling. You'd have that check in your spirit that you would knew it was right or wrong. And that is the helper. That's what God, that's what the Messiah said was going to come after he was gone, was his spirit was going to come and it was going to, going to be help you to remember the words of Yeshua and all the things that he commanded. And that spirit inside of you was that gut check that everybody has and everybody's still sitting in church on Sunday morning. There's a lot of people that still have that too. But then we come into knowledge. We come into what we call truth. We learn about Torah, the commandments, those teachings. And those things we read though, we finally open our Bibles from page one instead of two thirds through the book. And you go back, you start reading and then you realize that there, everything that you knew in your spirit is confirmed with words on a page. Amen and amen. But what happens is people go so far into that, go so far into the truth, go so far into the words on the page that they then forget that immeasurable feeling that's unquantifiable, that's in their heart, in their soul, that speaks to them and tells them right and wrong. But yet, for the most part, our movement is very, very comfortable with staying the same. Don't you dare take the plastic off of grandma's couch. quickest way to get beat. We're worried if we say Jesus. We're worried if we say Yahweh. Because it's Yahovah. It's Yahuwah. Tell you what, none of us are Hebrew scholars. So let's just do the best we can. We allow semantics to define us. And those semantics drive a wedge between us and others. Especially in the generational gap.
everything I have is yours Shalom and welcome to our live stream. My name is Chris Frankie and I'm one of the pastors here at HFF. We're glad that you've joined us. If this is your first time joining us for a service, welcome. The service is going to start in just a couple of minutes. At Hebraic Family Fellowship, we are a family-centered fellowship. We believe that the most important ministry that the Lord has given us is to our own home, to our wives, our husbands, to our children. We're glad you're here with us. We pray that your Sabbath has been blessed. And we can't wait to meet you in person one day soon. Shabbat Shalom. We miss you guys. We are looking forward to meeting again with you, and uh, we can't uh, wait to all be back together at HFF. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, HFF family. I hope your Sabbath is great. Sure miss hanging out with you guys and worshiping the Lord together. Um, looks like we might be coming closer to being back together. And so very excited about that. Uh, hope you guys enjoy the teaching today by Daniel uh, called Distinction, uh, Distinctions. Um, yeah, you can tell it's a Sabbath day, but uh, 
I hope you guys enjoy that teaching. Next week, we will have a, a teaching by Brent Avery uh, for our broadcast. And so super excited about that. Brent has been a, a close friend of HFF uh, for the last four years. So super excited about that. Um, praying everybody is doing well. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Shabbat Shalom.
Isaac and Jacob, blessed are you in this place. Father, we just thank you for everything that you are doing in the midst of our lives, Father. For the battles that you are winning, Father. For the walls that you are tearing down in our hearts and our lives, Father. Father, every breath that we take, every day that we live, let us become more and more like you. Let us become more and more like you, Father we may be able to be a light in a world that so desperately needs your son Yeshua. That we may be a light to those who have lost their hope, who have lost their faith, who have lost their way. For Father, I was one of them and you didn't leave me there. You came and you found me. And you've blessed my family, you've blessed my wife, you've blessed my kids, Father, more than I ever deserved. Father, no matter whether I'm on the top of the mountain or I'm in the lowest of valleys, Father, you have taught me to always raise my hands and to look up for my help. We praise you in this place, Father. For you alone are worthy of praise. Thank you. 
whether it be work or whether it be home, Father. Father, we ask humbly by the name of Yeshua that you would come and you would meet them in those moments and in those times and you would give them peace, your shalom, Father. To let them know that you are always with them, Father. They are worth it. They are yours. They are never alone. As their body heals, Father, continue to minister to their souls, Father, and their spirit, to keep their spirits high, Father, to keep their eyes focused upon you and your word, Father. A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Keep our eyes, our minds, our hearts meditating on the words of you, Adonai, our God. us to be focused on politics. This world wants us to be focused on all these other things, propaganda, everything that's going on, Father. It's all just a distraction from you. What we really need is you. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Father. We need to get back to the commandments of God. We need to get back to your word, Father. We need a heart change. We need a heart change, Father. We need repentance. We need restoration. Your word is about restoration, Father. Restoration to the sons, to the fathers, to the fathers, to the wives. The restoration of families, Father. The restoration of churches, Father. Father, oftentimes when we come, we have our physical ailments and we ask for you to step in and help the healing process. But Father, I'm asking also to heal the things that others cannot see, the broken hearts of bitterness of situations maybe happened years ago father release the chains of the bondage that the adversary would like to have us in that same freedom father prepare that work in our hearts father we pray for the peace of Jerusalem pray for Pastor Josh and for all of Timber Creek, Father. What a blessing they have been. Father, it is not a coincidence that you brought them to this ground. It is not a coincidence that you allowed us to stay in this facility with them. And it's not a coincidence that you are constantly drawing us closer together and building a relationship and a bond amongst brothers and sisters, Father. 
So, Father, we lift up their entire congregation. Father, we lift up their entire leadership. We ask that you continue to pour out a blessing, not only in their positions to help oversee this church, but in their homes, Father in their marriages, in their leadership of their children, Father. Pour out a blessing upon them, Father. Give them wisdom. Give them guidance. Because, Father, I believe greater things are coming to this city. And we cannot do it by our own power. We are simply not capable of doing it by our own power. Father, we need you. We need you to be the guide. We need you to be the wisdom. We need you to be our strength. For it's in Yeshua's name. Amen and amen. During this time, there's a tradition that happens where we bring up our little ones and we have this gigantic tallit prayer shawl that we uh, we purchased from Israel and so we invite all the little ones up and we're going to pray a blessing over you guys encouraging part. This is the good part. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for the blessing that you give. Father, I heard wisdom last night. You said that your children, they can either be a burden or they can be a blessing. And a lot of that comes down to our hearts. So, Father, we thank you that our hearts can be for our children in this blessing, Father. Right now, I ask you just favor them with life and health and peace right now. We thank you so much for your goodness, Father. Every single one is a unique blessing and a unique gift from you. Father, I know Chris mentioned this morning about restoration. Thank you that these kids are part of our restoration process. Father, not only seeing that, you know, the mistakes that we make in life, Father, we can see our children grow up and, and not make those same mistakes, but walk in the fullness. Teach us, Father, that we may raise our children in wisdom and in delight. Thank you, Father. You've called the Sabbath a delight, Father, and a lot of that has to do with us spending times and time with our families. Thank you, Father. We commit today to you. We ask that every single child here, Father, would be favored with your goodness, Father, to grow up and, and you to be building blocks and to be vessels in the glory of your kingdom. May they await your return and may they do your kingdom work in the meantime. We thank you now. We praise you for all these things in Yeshua's mighty name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, HFF. It's good to be back with you. It's been a minute since we were last together, and of course that time is still going on. We are all finding ourselves in the midst of this quarantine at this point. Now, I assume that uh, during this time when we're all you know, secluded in our homes, that everyone, of course, is still being faithful to read the Word, right? Uh, you're not using this time of isolation to binge on Netflix or read up on the 30 different conspiracy theories floating around on social media right now, are you? Of course you're not, right? Yeah, you're, you're all spending time in the Word. Well, whether you've been faithful in keeping up with the weekly readings or not, as a means of overview, over the last several weeks in our readings, we've covered the first eight chapters of the book of Leviticus. 
In Parasha Vayikra, the first parasha, the first set of readings in Leviticus, we find the instructions in regards to the sacrificial system, how it operates, its form, its function. Now, it's all written in those first five and a half chapters from the perspective of the one bringing the offering in that sacrificial system. Then in Parasha Tzav, the very next parasha, uh, we see the sacrificial system from the perspective of the priesthood. That is chapter 6 through 9 and, and how the priesthood is to respond when an offerer brings forth an offering. This is how the priesthood is to perform their duties when those offerings are presented unto Adonai. In chapter 8, the final chapter of Parashat Zav, we see the instructions concerning the consecration of the priesthood. The priesthood at this point simply consists of five men, Aharon and his sons, Nadav, Avihu, Eleazar, and Itamar. This is the whole entirety of the priesthood. Now, in Leviticus chapter 8, there's details there about how Aharon and his sons were anointed by Moshe for the task specifically of taking on the responsibilities of the priesthood. In that chapter, we see the instructions about how Moshe is to anoint their right ears, their right thumbs, and their right feet. And he's to do so with the blood that he collected from the ram that was brought for the ordination offering. After he has completed that, then Moshe takes some of the oil that is brought with those offerings, and he takes that oil and he dips his finger in, and he sprinkles it on the priests, these five men that are standing there. Then, at the very last portion of last week's readings, it finishes up at the end of chapter 8 with these words, At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of Adonai, so that you will not die. For so I have been commanded. Thus Aharon and his sons did all the things which Adonai had commanded through Moshe. So, in essence, what we see here at the very end of chapter 8 is that the priests are quarantined for seven days. How fitting that we should be reading this portion while we're all secluded to our homes. Well, that brings us to chapter 9, which is where this week's readings start. And what's interesting about this is that it starts off with, on the eighth day, it says. Now, this eighth day is, of course, the day that is after the seven days of sanctification. These seven days of sanctification that took place for the priesthood, for the tabernacle, during that time, the seven days, these men were ordered not to leave the tabernacle. They had to stay there the entire time. And as they were in their seclusion, much like we are in our seclusion, then during that time, this consecration took place. And in that time, then, as the eighth day arrives, we begin in chapter 9 about what is to take place. Now, what happens there? There's an amazing account that takes place where in chapter 9, we see that Moshe and Aharon come and they bless the people. And at the very end of chapter 9, on this eighth day, when the priesthood and the tabernacle have been consecrated, it says in verses 23 and 24, Moshe and Aharon went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out and blessed the people, 
the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before Adonai and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, what an amazing passage. And in a little while, we're going to look at verse 24. But for right now, let's look at verse 23. Now, in verse 23, we see this description that the glory of Adonai appeared before all the people. Now, what is this glory and, and what do we know this as? Well, if you're anything like me, um, hopefully you're not. But if you're anything like me um, and you happen to grow up with a Pentecostal background, then you've heard this, this term thrown about. It's this term, the Shekinah or Shekinah, depends on what part of the country you're from, okay? And so this word Shekinah, it's normally followed by the word glory, okay? And, and so what we have is this word Shekinah that's made its way into uh, Christianity. Uh, in particular, at least I can speak to the charismatic Pentecostal uh, persuasion. So the Shekinah is a word that is generally used to describe when, when the manifest glorious presence of the Lord is there. And so generally speaking, it would, this term Shekinah glory would be used uh, when, when there's this, this feeling of the Lord's presence is heavy here. Uh, the Lord's presence is, is manifested among us kind of thing. Okay. Now, where does this, this term uh, Shekinah or Shekinah come from? Well, um, it actually doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. Uh, now, it comes from the word shakan, okay? And the Hebrew word shakan means uh, to dwell. Uh, as an example, the, the tabernacle was named the mishkan, uh, and it comes from this very same word. And so that's why in some versions you'll see the tabernacle referred to as the tent of meeting, uh, or dwelling place, okay? Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's dwelling or meeting with his people. That's what it's referred to as. So it's the Mishkan. Well, in Numbers chapter 35, verse 34, we see this word being used, this word Shekan. It says, You shall not defile the land which, in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. The Hebrew there, in the midst of which I dwell, is Asher Ani Shekan. Okay, so in which I dwell or am placed. For I, Adonai, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. And that Hebrew there is, Ki ani Adonai shekan betoch b'nei Yisrael. In other words, with that, it is, here I am in the midst of Israel. Now, in, in those sections there, we see shekan used properly. In its context, the way that shikan should be rendered, it is to dwell. And so in that verse in particular, we see it used twice. That when you come to the place that I have chosen for you to dwell, and when I'm dwelling in your presence, there both times we see that the word shikan is used properly. Here's the thing. That's not the word that's used in Leviticus chapter 9 verse 23. Instead, the word that is used there because this word Shekinah, Shekinah, doesn't occur anywhere in Scripture. Um, the word is kavod. Now, kavod means heaviness or, or, or weightiness. And, and so it's, it's as if, um, let's say, many of you could probably relate to uh, climbing into bed 
and having a, a, a weighted comforter on you. They sell these special weighted comforters at the stores um, where it feels like this heavy weight is on you and some people sleep extremely well with that kind of weight on them. So that's kind of what's conveyed with this word kavod. It's this heaviness, this weightiness that basically what's intended here is that when the glory of Adonai would show up, people would feel it. In the same way that when we read the Passover story, many of us having just gone through our Passover seders recently, the ninth plague is the choshek, the, the darkness. And it says that the darkness could be felt there in, in the Exodus passage. Well, the same thing is here, is being conveyed with this word kavod. It's this, this weightiness, this heaviness that can, that can be felt. Now, this word is used numerous times in Scripture. In fact, we see in Exodus chapter 16, verse 10, it says, It came about, as Aharon spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the kavod, the glory of Adonai, appeared in the cloud. We also see six chapters later, Exodus chapter 24, uh, I'm sorry, eight chapters later, it says, The glory of Adonai rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moshe, from the midst of the cloud. So we see here twice that his, the kavod, this, this glory, is associated with this cloud that he inhabits. Then it says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 and verse 22, Then Moshe said, I pray you, show me your kavod, show me your glory. And Adonai's response to him, And it will come about, while my kavod, my glory, is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. In other words, my heaviness is too much. It will crush you, Moshe. And so I'm going to protect you by putting you here in this opening, and I'm going to cover you with my hand so that the heaviness, the weight of my glory, won't crush you. Then we see, finally, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the kavod, the glory of Adonai, filled the tabernacle. Now there, the Hebrew says, the kavod Adonai malei at hamishkan. So there we have kavod and shakan in the very same verse, that the glory, the kavod, the heaviness, filled the dwelling place, the, the mishkan, the, the dwelling tent. So where does this term shekinah, Shekinah come from? Well, ironically, although it's primarily used in Christian sources, uh, it comes from rabbinic literature. According to the Talmudic commentary, the word Shekinah represents the feminine attributes of the presence of Elohim, because Shekinah is a feminine word in the Hebrew, okay, because of the ending on it. Now, the, the further irony to this is that the word Shekan meaning dwelling, um, it's a masculine word. Uh, it doesn't uh, have that feminine uh, article to it. And so the word shikan, which occurs numerous times, many, many times in the scriptures, uh, it takes a masculine form, and yet this, this phrase shekinah or shekinah takes this feminine form, and it's supposed to convey some kind of a feminine attribute of, of Adonai. Now, for some unknown reason, the rabbis have come up with this made-up word that doesn't appear anywhere in scripture to describe some feminine aspect of Adonai that doesn't seem to jive with the rest of the scriptural account. And this word has replaced 
in common phraseology, a, a perfectly good word that is used numerous times in scriptures. And Pentecostals have followed the suit, the, the pattern that the rabbis have set down for them, ironically. Now, as crazy as that may sound, we can't just point blame at the rabbinic commentaries and unless we're willing to examine the log in our own eyes. I've heard far more outlandish and speculative things from some people who claim to be teachers in the Messianic or Hebrew Roots movement or whatever you want to call this, okay? So we're not faultless in this. Before we start pointing fingers at other people, we need to consider what we do ourselves. Now, we need to exercise caution and discipline lest we find ourselves in error. Now, speaking of error, good segue, Daniel. As we return to the parashah here, as we return to Leviticus, we find a record of a gross error. Now, to explain, the context of what takes place in chapter 10 comes right on the heels of what we just read in chapter 9. Specifically, Aharon and his sons, they're consecrated for seven days in Parashat Tzav. On the eighth day, which is where we start Shmini, eighth, that's this week's readings. On the eighth day of their consecration period, they're released from their quarantine and they're allowed to once again interact with all of the nation of Israel so they can go ahead and, and interact with everyone. But the final step of their consecration, they bring a bunch of offerings and place them on the altar. Now, at that point, after Moshe and Aharon utter a, a blessing over the people, of course, we can speculate what that blessing is, but I think most of us have a, a pretty good idea of what that blessing was. The glory of Adonai fills the tabernacle, and Adonai himself sends fire from heaven to consume the offerings that these men had placed upon the altar, and the entire congregation of Israel shouts and falls down on their faces. This is the immediate context of chapter 10. So, with that context, we can now start to understand what takes place next. Now, what happens here is clearly some, some period of time, we don't know, we're not given exactly how long, it could have been just the next day, but we're not told that information. It could have been that evening, we don't know. All we know is that chapter 10 starts off this way. Now, Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aharon, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before Adonai, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of Adonai and consumed them, and they died before Adonai. Now, back in Exodus chapter 30, in verses 8 and 9, Moshe had been given instructions concerning this very topic that Nadav and Avihu either disregarded or didn't hear or ignored or, or whatever the case may be. But there in Exodus chapter 30, verses 8 through 9, it says, When Aharon trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before Adonai throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Now, those instructions were specific to the altar of incense that was in the most holy place. But somehow, Nadav and Avihu either missed these instructions or uh, completely ignored them. Either way, 
now as a possible means of explanation as to why what just happened went down the way it did, we're given a clue in the next several verses that potentially explain the behavior of these two oldest sons of Aharon. Before Nadav and Avihu got roasted, did they get toasted? I ask that because almost immediately after the oldest two sons of Aharon, Nadav and Avihu, are killed by Adonai, Aharon, their father, is given an interesting instruction that is a possible explanation for why they were killed. It says in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, Adonai spoke to Aharon saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which Adonai has spoken to them through Moshe. So, the suggestion that we have here is that there's somehow a link between this instruction that we just read in verses 8 through 11 and the behavior of Nadav and Avihu. Could it have been that these sons of Aharon had been so filled with the feeling of self-importance that they took to drunken revelry? After all, hadn't they been the instruments through whom Adonai had caused his glory to appear? Hadn't they been the ones who had been consecrated to such an important task? Hadn't they reached the pinnacle of success, being the priests of the Most High? Weren't they the ones who had placed the offerings on the altar? Wasn't the fire that came down from Adonai a sign of acceptance of their new status? Wouldn't that be cause for celebration? I mean, they just spent seven days being sequestered, and they had arguably the most coveted, well-respected positions in the entire assembly of the three million people that make up the nation of Israel. Now that the glory of Adonai showed up in such a big fashion and the fire consumed the offerings that they themselves presented to Adonai, didn't this legitimize them as big, important people? Who wouldn't want to celebrate such success? The issue here, however, wasn't specifically about drinking or even about getting drunk. Adonai doesn't at this point tell Aharon you shall henceforth be Nazarites and shall never again consume wine or strong drink. He doesn't give that kind of uh, instruction here. He just says, don't drink before approaching my presence. He doesn't tell them, don't drink at all times, just don't drink before entering my presence. Now, lest I be misunderstood, I am not attempting in any way to make the point that drinking wine or strong drink is somehow taboo or sinful. To the contrary, uh, there's actually numerous verses in Scripture that support and even seem to encourage enjoying alcohol. Now, there are also numerous Scriptures that say drinking too much leads to bad consequences and that it's foolish, unwise, and shouldn't be done. So, drinking or not drinking is not what's at issue here in Leviticus chapter 10. Rather, the issue is that there is a principle that is being established and reinforced in this passage. To whom much is given, much is expected. You see, Nadav and Avihu had indeed been gifted 
with great prestige and status within the nation of Israel. Not as the result of their own inherent goodness or any special qualities that they alone possessed among all the children of Israel, nor was it due to any great thing that they had accomplished, but simply because they were born to the right set of parents. Being counted among the sons of Aharon meant that Nadav and Avihu, the two oldest of Aharon, they inherited great prestige and honor. But with that position came tremendous responsibility. They were to conduct themselves in a way that was out of the ordinary. As priests, above anyone else, they were to be held to a higher standard than everyone else. And if they failed to conduct themselves as such, these were the consequences. Now, perhaps that is unfair. Maybe. At least from our perspective of fairness. I mean, after all, I'm a pastor. My kids would fall under the same type of category. Oftentimes, it's pastor's kids that end up being the biggest hellions on the face of the world. I mean, they end up being some of the biggest rebels you'll ever see sometimes. Why is this seemingly unfair? From Adonai's perspective, however, this isn't unfair. From Adonai's perspective, he expects those who draw near to him to do so in the proper fashion, and that those who are closest to him should conduct themselves with the utmost honor and respect. Now, like Aharon, I need to make sure that with my children, I am not so consumed with that portion that I fail to teach my children the proper way to conduct themselves. And therein lies the pitfalls for most PKs, pastor's kids, is that what ends up happening is their instruction falls by the wayside. The relationship falls by the wayside because often we pastors become so consumed with our flocks when we're just simply under shepherds anyway. It's his flock. We become so consumed with our calling that we fail to raise our kids the right way. And that's truly what's at the heart of it. Perhaps this is exactly what was happening with Aharon. I mean, since the time that, that Moshe came back to Egypt, Aharon's been pretty busy. Okay, And so perhaps for the how many years it's been since this time, he hasn't been instructing his sons. Now, Adonai, of course, he sees things differently. And he says as much. Immediately after Nadav and Avi who are killed in verse 3, Adonai says these words, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. You see, approaching Adonai in a drunken fashion is not showing him the honor that he is due. The point of this is that Adonai is conveying to us over and over through the book of Leviticus that we are to as chapter 10, verse 10 says, make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. Nadav and Avihu hadn't done anything worthy of deserving the prestige and status that they were afforded as being sons of Aharon. They got front row seats to witness some of the most miraculous amazing, mind-blowingly fantastic events in history. Adonai's glory descending on the tabernacle in a way you could feel it? Fire from heaven consuming the offering? Chances are, 
These two were close enough to these things to actually physically feel both happen. They likely felt the heaviness of the kavod, the glory of Adonai. They likely felt the heat of the fire from heaven on their faces as it lit the altar and consumed that offering. They were able to stand right there, close up, and experience these amazing occurrences. Now, all this privilege, simply because they were born into the right household. Now, maybe most of us have a hard time relating to Nadav and Avihu, as far as that's concerned. Most of us weren't born into such prestige and status. Most of us have never known the feeling of being looked up to by the entire nation of people surrounding us like these guys were. In fact, most of us were born into households that led us on a completely different path. Most of us have found ourselves at some point at pretty much the virtual polar opposite of Nadav and Avihu. Most of us have found ourselves at some point in our lives like the prodigal son, wallowing in filth, in our own wretchedness, covered in our own sin, failures, and faults. But he who is faithful has seen to it to present us with a path that leads us back to him. Like the prodigal son, he has seen us approaching him on the road and he has run to us and wrapped his best cloak around us and brought us into his household. And then he's cleaned us up and he's given us a seat at his table. We who were once far off have now been brought near. We who were lost in our own wretchedness have been delivered from the inevitable end result of our own behavior. Unlike Nadav and Avihu, we weren't brought into this incredible situation because of our lineage. The fact that Adonai has poured out his grace upon us is not because we deserved it. It was only because of his great love for us. His tremendous mercy has been extended to us because he desired to bring us into his household. It is this sentiment that is expressed by Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of Elohim, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which Elohim prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Did you hear that? He created us for good works that He predestined long before we even existed, that we might walk in those good works. That is why He has brought us into His household. What an amazing King we serve! That He would provide a way for us, we who deserve nothing but death. Yet He provided a way for us to be brought near to Him through the resurrection of His Son. Yeshua conquered death on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to face the same fate as Nadav and Avihu, but instead we would get to spend eternity in His presence. As amazing as that is, however, and it truly is amazing, we find ourselves in a similar position to where Nadav and Avihu found themselves. Being brought near to the presence of the Almighty brings with it a tremendous sense of responsibility. Now that we have been brought into his household to become an heir to the promises given to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, we should learn from the example of Nadav and Avihu 
and the example that their behavior set. You see, the mistake that Nadav and Avihu made was that they became drunk with their own power in their position. Not necessarily drunk with alcohol, although that's what's indicated, but I believe they were also drunk with power. Now, this power was only afforded them because of the position they found themselves in. They took for granted their proximity to Adonai, their closeness to Him, and they didn't conduct themselves in a manner that was in harmony with such an incredibly blessed privilege. They loved the glory and the fire. I mean, who wouldn't? But what Nadav and Avihu did was to disregard the seriousness of their calling and, more importantly, who it was that their new position was to represent. Likewise, we who have been brought near to the king through the blood of his sacrificial lamb should be conducting ourselves in such a way that brings honor and fame to him, not to behave in such a way that causes others to see our behavior and wonder what type of king we serve who would allow such brazen disregard for his holiness and sanctity. Paul expressed this very same type of exhortation in his letter to Titus when he said, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Let me repeat that. For all men. There's no distinction for your enemy versus the one that you like. It's for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of Elohim, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. In other words, not because we're deserving, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Yeshua Mashiach, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What an amazing description of what we have inherited. Now, Peter put it this way. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for Elohim's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of Elohim. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, people who were once far off, but now have been brought near, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the nations, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify Elohim. In other words, those people who criticized you for your previous behavior, may they see the change in you and say, oh my goodness, I can't say anything bad about this person. Instead, I have to glorify the one that they are representing because there's been an obvious change in them. Now, allow me, if you would, to explain this concept to you in a different, 
perhaps more applicable and easily understood fashion. During this time, when we all find ourselves sequestered to our homes, quarantined because of the coronavirus that has spread throughout the world, we find ourselves in unique circumstances. Due to the nature of this scenario we're all facing, I've had to make several trips to the store for food and other items our family needs in order to sustain ourselves during this quarantine. Of course, there's always the danger there, and so each time I've ventured out to the store uh, and brought back grocery items, we've followed a strict protocol for bringing those items into our home, which include gloves for me when I go to the store and things of this nature, the bags as I bring them into the home, they have to go on the ground, not on the counter, can't just set them on the counter. My wife then diligently wipes down all the items with disinfecting wipes so as not to transmit anything from the goods that have been touched by somebody, potentially, or whatever the case may be, so that those things don't come in our home. She carefully cleans all the produce before declaring them safe for consumption. Now, all this may sound silly and overboard, but we would rather err on the side of caution than to treat the items that come into our home in a flippant manner and potentially expose our family to the sickness that's caused so many deaths worldwide. But here's the reality. My wife can spend all day disinfecting the groceries I bring home. They can be the most germ-free, virus-free, bacteria-free, gluten-free, shiny, spotless items in the state of Oklahoma. But if the items themselves are unhealthy, we're still putting ourselves into danger. What I mean is that if I only bring home a bunch of Little Debbie snacks and candy and chocolate and ice cream and things loaded with grease and sugar, then no amount of cleaning the outside of those products will transform them into healthy food. It's just not going to happen. Ultimately, it's not just the outside of the packages and containers that will transmit ill health to my family. It's also what's inside them that can potentially harm us. If all we are consuming is a bunch of junk food, it frankly won't matter how clean the packages are. In the same way, when the Father extended His grace to us, He picked us up out of the miry clay. He cleaned us up. He brought us into His household. He established us as His own treasured possession and made us royal priests. But if all we do in response is to bring all our trash into His home, it's going to lead to an unhealthy situation. Yeshua put it this way, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Like Nadav and Avihu, we find ourselves in a unique position. We've been brought near to our king, and we find ourselves in his presence. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his goodness. Unlike Nadav and Avihu, we weren't born into this position, nor was it thrust upon us by mere chance. Instead, it has come at great cost, the cost of the life of the only begotten son. The unfortunate example of the loss of the lives of Aharon's two oldest sons should convey to us that we shouldn't take our position lightly. Instead, we should be conducting ourselves in such a way that is a reflection of a fundamental transformation that's taken place within us. Let us not be like the blind Pharisee, but let's be diligent to clean the inside of the cup and dish 
Let's carefully examine our hearts and our thoughts and make sure that our actions and our intentions reflect His holiness. Let's be diligent to take every thought captive and bring it into subjection to the will of the Father. Let's be exuberantly passionate about ensuring that the way that we carry ourselves is not bringing dishonor to His name, but is instead upholding His righteousness, His holiness, and His reputation. After the death of Nadav and Avihu, Adonai said, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. This is an instruction that we should be well warned to heed. Amazingly, in His infinite grace and love, He's given us access to Himself, and we can enter into His presence without fear. But this quarantine that we find ourselves in, it won't last forever. At some point, it's going to end, hopefully sooner than later. So let me ask you this. What are you doing today, right now, to clean the inside of your cup? What are you doing right now in your life to make distinctions between the holy and the profane? Has this quarantine time that we all find ourselves in led you to pursue increased intimacy with Him? Or have you allowed distractions instead to dominate your thoughts and actions? Are you taking advantage of the slower pace of life to dig into His Word, allowing it to enrich your life and lead you into a greater, deeper love of the Father? Or are you instead binging the latest show about some wacko and his big cats? Just like the point made about alcohol earlier, I'm not saying that all entertainment is evil. I, too, enjoy the occasional series on my streaming device. The point I am attempting to make is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is our treasure in distractions, such as entertainment? Or is our treasure in making distinctions between the clean and the unclean? between the holy and the profane, between the sanctified and the common. Soon enough, we'll all be back together, and we're all looking forward to that day. We'll be released at some point to gather again in public in more than five or ten. At that point, the world may be forever changed. There's going to be some things that we will see that may never, change, may never come back, like shaking hands. Uh, that may fall out of common practice and become merely a memory. I mean, it's already happened, uh, you know, in, in the East. They bow. They don't shake hands. Maybe that's going to take place in our country. Don't know. You better believe that I'm still going to hug you guys. Okay, so there's still going to be human contact. It's not like we're going to get rid of all that and, and human contact will all become an anathema or something like that. But there are some things that might be different from now on just due to this experience that we've all had during this time. Of greater concern, however, is how we will be changed after this experience. Will we allow Adonai to use this quarantine to teach us anything? Or are we just going to waste our time? How will we respond when we are finally free to move about the country? Will we become flippant like Nadav and Avihu and display a lack of recognition that we are ambassadors of a great king? Or will we be cognizant 
of making distinctions in our lives. How will our lives be different after this time of seclusion? Will there be an evident change in the way that we conduct ourselves? Will those that we work with, go to school with, or are otherwise surrounded by, be able to notice that we've changed during this time? Or will we just return to the regular, common, ho-hum existence of repetition and habit, focusing on mundane tasks? Will others be able to look at us and see the love of the one who set us free? Will they see his glory reflecting from us? Will they notice that we have been in his presence and that we are different as a result? Let's aim to be distinct. Let's have a passion to be uncommon. Let's pursue becoming a reflection of his marvelous light. Now I'll close with this. I mentioned at the beginning that I would come back to verse 24 of chapter 9. What happens here is that immediately after the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle in verse 23, fire came from before Adonai and consumed the offerings on the altar, as we read in verse 23. In verse 24, we see the response of the people. Their response was to shout and fall on their faces. Now, I looked this verse up in just about every version I could find. And with only one exception, they all pretty much read the same. They all said that the people shouted and fell on their faces. There may have been some slight differences, but they all pretty much said that same phrase. There was one version, however, that said something different than all the other versions. Believe it or not, I'm of the opinion that the NIV version, not one that I'm a big fan of, but the NIV version actually rendered this verse better than any other version, and I think they're the ones that got it right. Okay, you see, in the Hebrew, in verse 24, it says, Kal ha'am, all the people. Then it says, Vayaronu vayiflu al panayhem. In other words, Vayaronu, and they shouted. Vayiflu, and fell, and they fell. Al panayhem, on their faces. This is what the Hebrew reads as. But the word vayaronu, for generally we see, and they shouted. It doesn't mean just to shout. In fact, this word is used 52 times in the scriptures. Only four times is it rendered as shout. Instead, the vast majority of the time that this word is used, this word is translated as sing, rejoice, sing aloud, or sing for joy. The NIV renders this verse as, they shouted for joy and fell face down. You see, when we have an encounter with our king, when we are in the presence of his glory, when he shows up in miraculous fashion, it should prompt us not just to shout, but to sing for joy. Don't wait until the quarantine is up to begin singing for joy into Adonai. Start now, start today. Start singing for joy right now and don't stop when this quarantine lets up. Walk out of your house, walk into the store, walk into your office singing for joy and let the world know 
that you have had an encounter with the Almighty and that you have been transformed by that encounter and that you are now his representative and that you will make a distinction between the holy and the unholy. Shabbat Shalom. If we could all rise, please. And the Lord spoke in motion and said, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is the way you shall bless the children of Yisrael. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom. Thank you for joining us for this week's Shabbat live stream. We pray that the teachings and the worship were edifying to you, but most importantly, that they lifted up and blessed the Lord because he has blessed us beyond belief. Even the ability to be able to be speaking to you today, no matter where you're at, it's a blessing. And we, we cannot thank the Lord enough for that. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, or you would like to give towards our widows and orphans and community funds to help those who are less fortunate, you can do so by visiting HebraicFamily.com. None of our staff takes any types of salaries or stipends, and all of the money is put back into furthering the work of the kingdom for the Lord. May Yeshua the Messiah bless you on the Sabbath. We look forward to seeing you next week. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, HFF family. I hope your Sabbath is great. Sure miss hanging out with you guys and worshiping the Lord together. Um, looks like we might be coming closer to being back together. And so very excited about that. Uh, hope you guys enjoy the teaching today by Daniel uh, called Distinction, uh, Distinctions. Um, yeah, you can tell it's a Sabbath day, but uh, I hope you guys enjoy that teaching. Next week, we will have a, a teaching by Brent Avery uh, for our broadcast. And so super excited about that. Brent has been a, a close friend of HFF uh, for the last four years. So super excited about that. Um, praying everybody is doing well and we'll talk to you guys soon. Shabbat Shalom.